No matter how many times I see that, that's always impressive. <laughs> Just to see the amount, of, the amount of force generated over such a distance with such small things. It's good to be back with you again this week. Uh, I do not have, for those of you who asked, I do not have the mixer. I do not have the, 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 the giant glass bowl. So those of you who um, you know, were, were challenged by letting your thoughts settle last week and having to, to see that going on, uh, I, won't, I, I won't torture you with that, <laughs> that device anymore. But for those of you who it was helpful, hopefully that served as an illustration. I know for me, throughout this week, I've worked very, very hard at trying to be still uh, in the midst of a lot of chaos at work and a lot of chaos uh, just going on <laughs> around with relationships and everything else. It, it's difficult. When you're actually committed to being still, it is difficult to pull back because in the business of life, we're always in motion. We, we don't seem to really stop and we're always acting and reacting to what's happening around us. But the problem is, like we talked about last week, as we're in motion, it's easy for us to drift off course. We, we move away from our goals, we move, move away from our morals, we move away from our relationships, and, and we move away from God. Last week, we talked about that need to stop and be still. Not just rest, but be still. Let every thought settle. Present ourselves to God. And stay still until we're aware and become sensitive to his presence. We learned that that's our true and proper worship, and we have a promise that comes with that. Anybody remember the promise? If we present ourselves to God, we're still before him. What's the promise? We will know his, his good and perfect will, right? I'm so glad that last week made a huge impact. Everybody just called that right out there. <laughs> Every teacher in the room goes, amen, I know exactly what that feels like. No, but if we, if we stop and we're still and we present ourselves to God, we will know his will. And so if we have a question about the direction of our life, we have a question about what we should be doing, we need to first be still. And we have to have a habit of that so that we're constantly doing that gut check. But what then? Once we're still... Once we know what God's will is, what's next? What's next? Do we bound off after what we think he's saying? Or do we roll back into the business of serving and doing life? Because you know as well as I do that, that even if you get to a moment of stillness, the hardest part is not getting to the stillness. That's hard enough. But once you're still and once you have that clarity, once you have that direction, the next part is even harder. Which way do I go? And how do I not drift back into just going? How do I not just fall back into the same pattern and the same habits I had before? Because if we do, we're only going to momentarily delay the drift that we've been experiencing. I've, uh, I've asked Bruce to be a volunteer, and we're going to do a little illustration for you. I'm going to ask Bruce to, to come over here, and, and it's frankly because of Bruce's sheer size in comparison to me. If you could stand here on my left. Uh, and, and so uh, I just want to do two, two things with him to, to de demonstrate or set up where we're going today. So first of all, would you face, actually, let's come up here for a second for the first one. So just face me, and I'm going to push you. Okay, don't let me push you. Ready? Yep. So he's still, right? Brace yourself. Uh, I'm brace. Okay, you don't need to. 
You know, you notice how threatened he is by my size. He's like, "Yep, I'm braced." He doesn't even have a foot back. Like I'd be, I'd be like, "Yeah, bring it." You know, he's he's, he's like, "I'm braced." It ain't nothing. Say, watch. <laughs> I can't move him. He's still, right? And and the amount of force and mass I would need to have to try and knock him over is is quite a bit more than what I have currently. <laughs> so, now come with me back here again. And I just want Bruce to walk beside me a few steps. My goal is not for you to fall over, so just go with me on this. So we're walking together, walk, 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 and see how easy it is for me to move him? I can steer him right around the keyboard because he's in motion. Give him a hand. <laughs> see, told you it was going to be simple. Oh, don't go that way. Don't, don't, you got to go this way. You got to go around. <laughs> Look at that. I steered him right up, like, poof. But that's perfect. That is a perfect illustration. Thank you, Bruce. That was more than I asked for. <laughs> He's off course. He's come, he didn't even know how to get out of here. I had him so far off course. It's, so when you're dealing with somebody who is really entrenched in a, in a thought or, or they're really stuck in a certain place, it's easier to help them move out of that place if they're in motion. That's why when somebody starts an argument with you and they're already set on what their mind, you know, their mind is already made up and, and set on what they're thinking, that's why going back at them directly doesn't work because they're not in motion, okay? And so it, any counselor will tell you that the best way to get somebody to start to make progress on whatever the issues that they're stuck in are is to get them in motion. Get them relationally thinking, talking about other things and then using those things you can sort of move along and you can adjust their trajectory and you can get them to see the, a different perspective but they have to be in motion. Well, the opposite is true for us, that when we're in motion, it's way easier for the enemy to get us off course because we haven't stopped and we haven't been still. But along with being still, we have to know how to stand. You notice in the first part, Bruce didn't have any trouble standing. He, <laughs> he didn't even try. He was just kind of like, Oop, I'm here. Because he knew, I mean, he knew his size compared to mine, my strength compared to his, it'd be easy for him to resist me. He just stood. We have to be able, once we have been still, to know how to stand. Stillness makes us aware of God's presence and his will, but the determination to stay the course comes from knowing how to stand firm. Standing firm is what allows us to stay on target, even in motion. So how do we do that? How do we stand still? We're going to look at one scripture today, um, several verses in Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20. And, and while you're looking at this, I just want to point out something in the background. Um, go ahead and bring that verse up. If you noticed last week, the dominoes in the background, it was sort of like a pulled back view and we could see the distance because that's what stillness does. Stillness gives us a little bit longer perspective. It helps us take the thousand foot view, the God view, the, the, the perspective that says where are, where, what's going on and what direction are we going. But when we learn to stand, in order to learn to stand, we have to kind of zoom in and figure out exactly where we are. Anybody ever been lost in a mall? And you know that famous red dot. You know the one I'm talking about, the one that's in the, in the little triangular map thing in the center of the mall? 
maybe, so maybe they're, they're okay, so we have phones now, and we've got, they, it's not as prevalent, but they're still there in larger malls. Have you ever walked up to one and been like, I have no idea what floor I'm on. I have no idea what department I'm near. All I know is that store is there. And you walk up and it says, you are here. And there's that little red dot. Anybody? I'm like, man, you guys are asleep. Okay, I'm, I'm going to be fair with you. I have had black tea with rosemary in it this morning. I am jacked on caffeine right now. <laughs> so I am ready to go. And if you don't come with me, I'm going to feel like, oh, my word, I should never do that again because I just blew, blew, away, blew them away. But so, so at least make some noise, let me know you're conscious out there. But, but in order to know how to stand, we have to be able to zoom in and say, you are here. And we have to know what here means. And that's what this scripture verse is going to help us understand. Paul uses an illustration while he's in prison to help us understand how do we do that check? How do we check where we are? And in particular, where we are in relationship to God's plan. So by being still, we know his will, we know his direction, but then how do we know where we are in relationship to that and how equipped we are for what he might be calling us to? Understand? With me? Oh, thank you. Thank you for that. All right, so let's read it together. Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is, oh, I'm sorry, I misled you on that. And you're so, you're so, I love it. We can read it, we can read it together. I meant visually, but you can say audibly too. Let's do, let's do that. For, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, Put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. You guys can say it easier than I can, apparently. In addition to all of this, take the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given to me that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. That's a long set of verses, and there's a ton in there. And what we're going to do is we're going to unpack the armor. I mean, as you already know, Paul is, is likely in prison at this point in his ministry, and he's writing letters out to the churches. And so he has a Roman guard that's stationed near him. And he's able to see this kind of up close and personal, and he understands the elements of the Roman guard's equipment. He knows what it's designed for. He's probably seen it in action. And so we're going to take a look at that. We're going to put up the armor and we're going to break it down. So this is pretty typical Roman armor. Now this is actually Roman armor 2.0. Um, Roman armor 1.0 would have been a breastplate that was made of chain mail. And I'll talk about that in a second and why they changed it. But I want to start first with the belt. Notice the belt sort of goes around the bottom of the breastplate to hold the bottom in place. And then it also has the dangly bits. 
right? Out in front. It's got, that was intentional. It's okay. You can laugh at that. It's, they are. They're dangly pieces of metal in front, all right? And they're in front of a particular area. Now, why is this important? And why does he choose the belt as a place for truth? And we could say, you know, and I used to actually teach that the belt was the center. It's your center of balance. You want truth to be at the center, blah, blah, blah. I started actually doing some research and found out that if you go back and you think about and you learn what, the, um, what, what people in Paul's era would have expressed, um, your different aspects of, of what you feel, what you think, you know, those, those types of things, there were different body parts than we typically choose, okay? So if we talk about feelings, we typically refer to our what physical body part? Our heart. Guess what they referred to? Your kidneys, your kidneys and sometimes your loins, but mostly your kidneys. Why? Well, let me ask you. Maybe you've had this experience. I never really recognized it until I thought about it some more. But whenever you have a, an emotional response to something, does it start here? If you have a physiological reaction as you're having an emotional response, does it start here? Not typically. There's often like a warm tingly that's in and around your midsection, right? And it's, it's, think of that last time you had a sense of fear or a sense of dread. It probably came around here, and then it kind of came up over your shoulders. Is it any wonder they would say that your feelings are centered around your kidneys? Because we know physiologically we often have a response that's in that area. So for them it made sense. These are your emotions. But what is Paul saying? When he says the belt of truth must guard you in this area. But first I want to say this. Last week when we talked about letting your thoughts settle and intentionally putting down those thoughts that are heavy, I want to make one clarification. That did not mean stuffing your emotions. Okay? That was simply dealing with the thought. Because if you, if you stuff your emotions, that's not healthy. But you can control your thoughts. You can bring your thoughts under, into obedience to what is right and what is true. You can settle them down. You can set them aside. Emotions are something that we don't bury. We don't hide them. But they need to be guarded. And in particular, Paul says they need to be guarded with truth. And if you think about where the belt goes, even going down past your loins, it is guarding all that you feel and desire on every level, okay? Whether it's, whether it's fearful, whether it's exciting, whether it's sexual and, and oh, passionate, the belt of truth is designed to guard you and to keep your emotions in check. Yes, I know, you guys are like in middle school. He's <laughs> back there. <laughs> yes, I get it, I get it. We're dealing with the sensitive area. All right. But think about it. Truth, when you feel things strongly, whether it's desire, whether it's fear, whether it's joy, truth needs to be brought to bear on that because feelings in and of themselves are deceptive. Feelings do not require facts to happen, right? We don't need facts to provoke feelings. Feelings just happen. You can walk into a room and a smell sets off a feeling of fear and you don't know why. And you have to actually go, wait a minute, why am I afraid? Like, what's in this room that I'm really afraid of? That is a very simple example of bringing truth to bear on your feelings. 
That's one of the things that's so dangerous about where our culture is right now in pushing a lot of narratives about how did you feel? How do you feel? How do you feel? What was it like for you? And we spend so much time in the feel and the feel leads to so many narratives and stories and imaginations. But get this, feelings without facts are just fantasy. Just fantasy. And we cannot, we cannot live in the midst of fantasy. Fantasy doesn't work in real life. It doesn't. And so Paul starts here by saying, look, look, I get it. We all are passionate human beings. We all have emotions. Don't stuff them. Don't bury them. You can't hide them, but you have to face them. And if they're really intense, negative emotions, you've got to bring them up and you've got to face them, but you've got to face them with the light of truth. You must bring truth to bear because if you don't, then you will spend your life either in fear of things that don't exist and may never happen or in desire of things that, that are unreal and unrealistic. And your life will take on the narrative of a fantasy. That's not what God intended for you. God doesn't want you to live a fantasy. His reality is so much better than any fantasy we could imagine. He wants us to live in his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So that's the belt. That's the belt. What about the breastplate? And I want to come back to the, the, the chain mail. Remember I said 1.0 was chain mail. The problem with chain mail, for those of you who don't know what chain mail is, it's, it's a series of steel rings that are linked together so tightly that if you strike somebody with a sword or try to poke them with a sword, the sword is broad enough and the chain mail, the links are tight enough that it can't cut through them, it can't penetrate them, and it, it protects you. It's almost, almost, almost like a bulletproof vest. But what they began to discover during warfare is that chainmail has a weakness. Anybody know what it is? Chainmail has a weakness against arrows. Properly designed arrows can puncture between the rings, it can actually, as it comes in, it can hit the rings just right that it punctures right through and still kills you. And so the Roman, the Roman armorer, armorers, that's hard to say, the Roman armorers came up with another design and it was this flexible steel plating. It was lighter than chain mail because you didn't have as much mass to it and it was tied together with leather straps. You know that, that our football equipment, modern football equipment is very much like this. It's actually designed in some respects similar to this. You could have maximum flexibility, but if you hit those steel plates with an arrow, it may dent, it may just get the tip in, but it will not puncture the wearer. It made the Roman soldiers very deadly in battle because now swords could not stop them and impact their vital organs, and arrows couldn't stop them. It's very, very, very difficult to pierce the breastplate. So why does Paul say that you need to wear the breastplate of right living? Well, we talked earlier about the seat of our emotions. We often say that's our heart, right? And, and, and in reality, for them, it would have been their kidneys. So we need to realign our heart, too. Because if you've ever had... Think of the last time you had a very intense thought. And I'm not talking about a feeling, but something you knew that you knew that you knew that you had to take action on. Where, where do you physiologically feel that? And maybe this isn't the same for you, but it is for me. 
Like if you feel like you have to take action, like this is true and it needs to be acted upon, there's like a warmth across your shoulders and up your neck. It's right in here. Like this has to, this is, you know, maybe it's an injustice. Maybe, and it's not feeling. Like you know that you either have to call the police or you have to, you know, whatever it is. It's, it's serious. It's true. That's, they called the heart the seat of thinking. And so when you understand that, and he says, put the breastplate of right living on, what he's saying is your choices and the way that you live actually protect your thinking and vice versa. Your thinking and making right choices will help protect your future thinking. And some of you say, well, that sounds a little bit mixed up. Well, think of it this way. How many times have you made a bad choice, and then to cover up the bad choice, you make another bad choice, and then another bad choice, and after a while, you don't know how to make a good choice anymore? You get stuck. That's exactly what he's talking about. We need the breastplate of right living in place. And, and so how do we break that down more simply so that we know how to apply it? Think of it this way. Before I take action, I must have settled what the moral principle is first. That's what righteousness or right living means. It means morally correct. I must know what the moral principle is before I take action so that my thinking is not messed up by other information or facts or what have you that might get in the way or once I'm in motion might impact the way that I'm trying to do things. The moral principle must be very clearly in focus to protect my thinking. Does that make sense? You with me on that? Okay. So he says we need that. And, and I'll share this with you. There's a, there's a friend of mine who's a businessman. He started a, a company called The Right Thing. And it was a company that started out as an entrepreneurial startup, ended up becoming a best-in-class company, was purchased out by a global company. But the slogan that drove that company from the very beginning was one that the, the CEO had come up with, the owner had come up with. And he said, when you do the right thing, good things happen. Just a very simple principle. It wasn't necessarily religious. It wasn't necessarily meant to be religious. It was just a simple, observational, moral principle. And yet, it's true. It's true. When you do the right thing, I would push that statement even further. When you do the right thing, God things can happen. Why? Because if the moral principle is set before you ever begin then your, your compass arrow, if you will, is pointed in the right direction. And what you're going to accomplish with that moral principle already set or what decisions you're going to make with that moral principle already set are going to be in line with what is good, right, and true. And so therefore the results will be good, right, and true. Even if they don't seem to be good, right, and true as you're progressing, the end result will be good, right, and true. Make sense? Okay. And then Paul goes on. So we've got our feelings in check with truth. We've got our thinking guarded by making moral choices and considering the moral principle first. And he goes on to the shield. The shield is a really interesting thing, and I don't know if you can see it here. It's, it, it's, the way it's positioned, it's kind of hard to see, but that little bump in the middle, that, that's actually a hand grip in behind, but it's, um, it's curved. And so that shield, that's only half of what you see there, and you see how it's already curving around his body? It would actually curve like from hip to hip if you stood up here in front of me or in front of him. And it would, it would surround you enough that you were individually protected. But the Roman soldiers had a tactic 
much like we might see in our SWAT teams today. When you see police in a riot, what do they do with their shields? They have them in front of themselves, but what do they do together? They stand side by side, and they overlap the edges of their shields so that nothing can penetrate, right? Well, the Roman soldiers had a maneuver, and I'm not going to try and say it in Greek, but it basically meant tortoise. And what they would do is they would have a group standing this way with their shields linked together in front, and they would have another group right behind those people with their shields over top. And the curvature of the shields would allow the people in front to see out, and if needs be, throw a pyre, which was one of their spears, or have their sword ready. They could also see where the enemy was and they could maneuver. Nowadays, we have plexiglass shields, so we don't need to do that. But they would, they would do it and they could see out there. And the overhead shields would protect them from any arrows or rocks or tar and pitch and fire, whatever else would be poured on them or thrown at them. And it was designed not just as a defense, it was also designed for offense. So for defense, obviously, if things are coming at you, but for offense, you could press into a crowd of, of enemies, uh, enemy, enemy combatants. You could press into the crowd and be protected in the shield and then just come out between the shields and attack. Paul calls this the shield of faith. And there's a certain extent to which I think the application should be pretty obvious to us that when we are guarded with faith and trust in God, God is our shield. And when we have our faith in God and our relationship with God, that gives us some confidence of his protection. But when we are together with others in community and we're sharing in that, then that faith is reinforced over and over again. It's not brainwashing, it's truth. It's reflecting on what God has done and what he will do and what he has promised he will do. And we're able to say, yeah, you know what? We've been here before. We've got a strategy to be able to handle that. Paul goes as far as to say, with the shield you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. What does that mean? Well, I think the, the, you know, going back into his context, it's pretty obvious, you know, that they, the flaming arrows. And sometimes they would soak those shields because those shields are made of plywood. They would soak those shields in water so that when the arrow hit, for us, how many times you go through the day and you have people's comments, you have the news, you have a look that a coworker gives you, or a classmate, or somebody else. And all of a sudden, just the look, just the comment, the emotions start stirring, the thinking starts going, and you don't know if you're on offense or defense, because you're not protected by faith at that moment. You're actually looking at people. You're engaging in people-pleasing. You're disturbed by a dart. And we should not be so naive as to think that, you know, whether you believe in the supernatural or not, if you're still kicking your tires in your faith, I don't want to weird you out. But the reality is the supernatural is real and Satan is real. And he will take ordinary daily events and he will fire a dart Almost like he's whispering in your ear, what did they mean by that? Why do you think they did that? I mean, to some extent, we do that enough of our, on our own, right? We're just na- we just naturally do that. And the enemy knows that. And he will try to stir that pot every 
chance he gets. And Paul says, it is the shield of faith that extinguishes those darts and those arrows. And it is by being a community with others that we're able to trust, hey, you know what? God's got this. Because go back to the reminder at the very beginning. What was the reminder? Our battle is not against, say it out loud, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Some of you missed that. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. We don't wear the shield of faith. We don't wear the armor to protect ourselves against people. We don't have to. People are a non-threat. People are people. But when we have a position of stillness, we have a, a place that we stand and we're able to see the truth, we're able to understand the moral principle first, and we have the shield of faith, we're able to see the actions and the things that are said and done around us and the, and the behaviors of people much differently. We don't have to be threatened by it. We can simply look at it and be like, hmm, okay, well, God, you've got this. If you need me to engage, tell me what I need to do. If not, you know, it's whatever, whatever their deal is today, I'm going to pray for them. Then we go on to the helmet. The head was considered your source of life, okay? Because obviously they knew from application with animals and so on that if you cut off the head, there is no life to the body anymore. So they, they didn't understand the brain and how the brain works and all that kind of stuff back then, but they, they understood that without your head, you were no longer going, your body was no longer going to be alive. And so the image is that you put on the helmet to protect your life. And it's interesting, he says, that's the helmet of salvation, this is a very simple example that he uses because you can have all the right moral principles. You can have all the truth. You can have all the trust that maybe God is in charge. But if you do not have a confidence that your life is in God's hands, you will wither in the face of direct opposition every single time. Because without that confidence, you will be concerned about who? <laughs> Yeah, if you're afraid your head's going to get cut off in the next moment, you are not going to be confident going into it. No matter how much you know the truth, no matter how much you know what's moral, and no matter how much faith you have that God's in control, if you're not actually aligned with him and knowing that your life is aligned with him, you're going to ebb to pulling back and protecting self. Paul says, put on the helmet of salvation. So if you don't have a relationship with God, if you don't know what it's like to trust God with your life, then I urge you, seriously consider that. Because all these, uh, being a good moral person doesn't do it. Doesn't, it doesn't give you the confidence to actually stand in the face of threat. And then we come to the sword. Notice I'm saving the feet for last. Uh, so don't, I didn't forget them. We'll get there. The sword was a short double-edged sword, a gladius. Uh, and actually gladius is just Latin for sword. So if you, if you actually study um, ancient weaponry and things like that, and you look at swords, it'll be uh, certain types of gladius. And the, the type of gladius, I don't remember the name of it, and it was difficult to pronounce, but it's, uh, it's a short, broad, double-edged sword that Roman soldiers initially used. Later, they, they had another kind of gladius that they adopted towards the end of the Roman Empire. But in the time that Paul would have been writing, it would have been this shorter, broad, double-edged sword. And we think that it's like a short, like people, people used to think that it was just a short slashing sword in battle. And sometimes you'll see movies where they're hacking away like this. 
That is not how Roman soldiers were taught to fight with this particular sword. This sword was designed and most effective at thrusting. And Roman soldiers were taught how to thrust at critical organs in their enemy, to pierce the heart, to pierce the vital organs, to pierce the leg muscles or the tendons so that you could incapacitate your enemy and take them down. And I, I know that was very graphic. Some of you were like, whoa, why do I want to know about this sword? And how could Paul call this sword of the Spirit the Word of God? Well, first and foremost, let me remind you, our battle is not against flesh and blood. So if Paul is making this application of the sword, he is not saying that we take the Word of God and we go out and we puncture people with it, Okay. The word of God is not meant to go out and be like, slam, poke, you know, that's, it just doesn't, that, it has no effect. It's just like me pull, pushing against Bruce. But the word of God is truth. The word of God is God's perspective on every situation. His moral principles brought to bear on real life. And so if our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it is against principalities, powers, spiritual forces of evil, okay? So that, those are all fancy words of saying those thoughts, idealisms, and, and philosophies that are fantasy. They're not backed up by God's facts. They're not backed up by creation. They're not backed up by science. They're not, because who created science? Who created creation? Our understanding may be off a bit as we engage those things. We're still learning, but if we bring the word of God to bear, it is not brought to bear to injure a person. It is brought to bear to tear down every idea, every philosophy that does not square with the word of God. And then we do that, and when we do that, it's not a matter of an argument and a fight, and I'm going to prove you wrong. It's, what about this? Have you ever seen this principle applied? And you just take a simple principle from the Word of God, and you put it out there, and you don't have to tell somebody that it's the Word of God. Just ask them. One of the most effective, one of the friends of mine who's very effective at, at, at talking with teenagers today, one of the things that he does is he doesn't talk at all about, well, the Bible says. He doesn't even say, well, you know, Paul said. <laughs> he doesn't even do that. He'll just say, you know what, I, you know, I heard this principle, and he'll share it. And the teenager will be like, hmm, and they'll come back and be like, you know what? You, you said something. Like, where did you get that? Because like, that's so true. And like, how do, I, how do I know more about that? And he'll be like, well, have you thought of this? And he'll just give them another one. And he'll do that until they're like, they're, they're like, where do you get this? How do you know this stuff? And he's like, well, it's real simple. It's right here. And then he'll introduce them. Because at that point, they're ready. The ideas, the philosophy, the confusion, the messages that had them in a place where they were not open to hear the truth have been torn down by the word of God. They were preached at. They were just loved in relationship and they were given God's word, not even knowing what it was. And God's word, what do we know about God's word? It always accomplishes the task for which it's sent. Sharper than any double-edged sword. Even to dividing joints and marrow. I mean, does that sound familiar? That's a gladius. So it's no wonder that Paul used that. We just have to have a correct understanding of how we use the sword and not go bludgeoning and piercing people with it. 
we have to be creative and we have to be respectful and we have to be loving, but we still have to use it to thrust into those principles and be precise. It is a scalpel. If the heart of any situation cannot stand examination by the word of God, and this is more self-reflective, so it's one thing to know how to apply that to people, but let me bring this to us for just a second. If the heart of any situation that you're facing cannot withstand the examination of God's word, then we will not be able to stand in that situation. So if you, if you ever have been in a situation where you say, well, I know God's word says, but... Okay, anybody else? Thank you. I know God's word says, but, and then we walk into that situation, do not expect to be able to stand. Because at that moment, you have placed yourself outside of truth. You have placed yourself outside of the moral principles that will help you stand. And you've taken off the armor. So if it cannot, if it cannot stand examination by the word of God, use caution. And I would recommend don't go there. And then we come to the feet, the sandals of a Roman soldier. You can't see it here because they look flat. But a Roman soldier's uh, shoe, and oh, there you can see it. It's, it thank you, Gilbert. Um, so they would have, it's kind of like, for those of you who are listening by, by audio or podcast, it's, it's kind of like the snow tires in the north where they have studded tires. It's these little metal studs on the bottom, and, and these are probably worn down just a bit. But they would use these because if you've never been to, well, most of the Roman Empire, but it, particularly in the Middle East, the, the ground is very rocky and very, um, not, not, it's not sandy, but it's almost like dust. It's, um, like it's just broken up rock, basically. And so it's, it's very slippery when you try to stand. If somebody pushes you, you have no traction. And so they would do this so that during battle, they, their feet would not slip. Very simple. This is snow tires for a soldier. What was so important about it, though, is when they would take, they could take terrain. They could run, they could march, they could battle over terrain that few other armies could really stand. And part of it was the traction that they had, as well as the weapons and the armor that they carried. Paul says, our feet should be ready or fitted with a readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And that's hard for us to initially understand because we've got to break down two things. It's readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. So it's a readiness that comes from peace. We have to be at peace in order to be ready. If we want traction on anything that God is calling us to, if we want traction on just standing where we stand, we must, 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 must be at peace. Now, peace is not drugs. Peace is not nirvana. Peace is not, you know, hey, man, so good to see you. That's not peace. Peace is when we go into any situation and we do not allow ourselves to be in a state of threat. It doesn't mean we don't recognize a threat, but we don't respond in fear. We don't respond in anger. We don't respond. It's a measured response no matter the situation. And it's peace for many reasons. First of all, again, going back to God has this. God's in control. We're not. And so peace says, I'm not in control of this situation. And 
if this is about people, my battle is not against people. So I don't really care what you say about me. I, I'm not going to fight you. I have, no, I have no reason to fight you. I have nothing to gain by fighting you. Peace is able to walk in any situation. Oh, you don't agree with me? Oh, you think that as a Christian I'm a bigot or I'm a racist or whatever. Oh, okay. I, you know what? I, I'm not going to fight you. Because that fight's not going to produce the good that God wants. I can walk into that situation and be like, wow, I'm so sorry you feel that way. Is there any, is there any opportunity for us to talk more about that? Any opportunity for us to, to connect? Nope, okay, all right. Peace is the ability to walk in a situation where you see somebody making deliberate life choices that you know are destructive, that you know are against God's principles, and you don't go in and be like, you don't go in and be a scold, you know? Why are you doing that? What's wrong with you? Your peace says, you know what? I love you so much. I want to figure out what's going to help you. And come back to our illustration for just a second because peace, if peace is on our feet, if our feet are fitted with that readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, we have traction for any situation we're going to go into. We're not going to slip. Whether we're standing or whether we're in motion, we're not going to slip. But what's important is not just our own direction. And the, and the biggest mistake you could make out of this entire series is to think that we pull back and we get still and we get aware of God's presence and we stand still in his principles just for us. Because if it's just for us, then we've got our eyes on the wrong thing. We have to be looking at what the good, perfect, pleasing will of God is. And that will is way, way bigger than just the targets in front of me. There are people you're going to interact with that they have their own set of dominoes that need to be set in motion. You may be one of those dominoes along the way that help them get to the point where they have the momentum to take down something that's out ahead of them that they haven't been able to do, but you are a part of that, that, that process and that momentum. There are going to be ones that you have to intentionally start this is not just one life mission that we're looking at. This is all of the lives around you. And you can't perceive, you can't understand and do exactly what's necessary if you are not at peace. And I get an amen anywhere in here. Because if you are not at peace, what do you do? If you're in the midst of the, of the, of the rush and the hurry and the, and the hustle, I mean, think about it. We're coming into the, a busy Christmas season. If you're in the midst of that hustle and something happens, you are not typically going to respond with, okay, wait a minute. Let me think of the best thing to do here. No, it's going to be a word or an action or something, and it's going to be brisk, and it's going to probably be intense. The nice, you know, I hear we have friends that call it, uh, they call their marital fighting intense fellowship. <laughs> we, we've adopted that phrase every now and then. And we can joke about that, and sometimes that's true, but intense fellowship doesn't always tip the right domino. And in order for us to have traction for our own direction in our own life, and in order for us to have traction so that we can accomplish the good that God has out in front of us, we need to be at peace. And so a question you can ask yourself is, why am I not at peace? Because we, inevitably we all have somewhere where we're not at peace. What is causing that unrest? What is causing us to not be at peace? And then begin to take that back into your stillness and say, God, what, what's this... What, why am I stirring here? Why am I not at peace? Why, why every time I meet somebody like this, do I, like my, 
my defenses go up and I don't know how to respond and my words get all jumbled and I'm afraid. Why does that happen? Let God bring you to peace in that place. Start to put the truth around those emotions. Start to put the moral principles in place of how you need to deal with the situation. Maybe it's your job. Why is it, you know, every time they, they change the way that we do things, it's just, it freaks me out and then I want to argue with my manager and, you know, why? Why am I not at peace? How do I address this better? Because at the end of the day, there is a peace you may play in that that you cannot impact with you are not at peace. And that's P-I-E-C-E versus P-E-A-C-E. Even if it's your job, even if it's something that looks like it's beyond you, even if it looks like something somebody's doing to you, pull back. Say, well, wait a minute. Because there may be something that's going on with your boss. There may be something that's going on with the company that you have no idea about. But you need to be in a place where you can stand and see clearly before you take action. Next week, we're going to talk more about the habit that we need when we're in motion. Because once we're in motion, there is another habit that we absolutely must have alongside of stillness and alongside of being able to stand firm. But for now, we need to either learn to brush up on these tools that Paul gives us, this, this armor and how to use it, so that we can stand firm in the face of evil and, and get our thoughts straight and get our, our actions right and stop battling against people. Or we need to simply learn how to hold our ground or advance the principles that we know are true. Making sure that our weapons are pointed in the right direction and that our armor is protecting what it should be protecting. Your single point for this week is this. I am prepared to walk with the Lord when I use his tools to keep myself aligned to him. And before you think that's, you know, that's not doublespeak, I'm prepared to walk with him when I'm willing to use and I'm prepared to use his tools to be aligned to him. Very simply, alignment is, is making sure that you are lined up, that you are, just like when Bruce and I were walking together here. Because the goal at the end of the day is if I'm walking with the Lord, I want him to do to me what I did to Bruce. That as I'm going, you know, I don't want God to have to like pick me up, slam me down, like, what are you doing? Get over there. You know, it's just, I don't want that experience. I've, I've had those experiences with God. Maybe some of you have too, where it's just like, it's very parental and you go, ah, thank you for the two by four. I needed that. <laughs> but most of the time, we grow better when we're in motion and God is nudging us along. We're on the right path and God just says, oh, here, oh, over here, over here. And, and we start to get a rhythm with him and we start to see. And then it's a lot easier for us to stop and be still because we're not caught up in all the frenzy of everything else. So that's, that's it. That's the armor. Those are the pieces. Don't know how that's going to help you and, and, and break that down individually. But if there are armor pieces that stood out to you, focus in on those for a while. Say, you know, how do, I, how do I get my emotions in check with truth? How do, I, how do I make sure the moral principle is in place before I take action? How do I just be confident that my life is in God's hands? How do I use faith to shield me from all the crazy messages that hit me every single day? 
How do I connect with others so that we're protected? How do I appropriately use the word of God for my own thinking and my own direction, but also for those around me? And then how do I have traction with peace? So hopefully that's a helpful set of tools. Like I said, next week we're going to dig into, once we're in motion, how does all this come together? So let's pray. Father, I thank you, not just for the stillness and for the, the, the image last week and the necessity to pull back to get a right perspective, to simply be aware of you and less aware of ourselves, less aware of the chaos around us. But then the encouragement, God, we get from Paul to stand firm, to know where we stand, know why we stand there and what tools we have at our disposal. God, there's a lot here. And whatever was unsaid by me, God, I pray that by your spirit you would communicate to that, that to our hearts and minds. You would draw us back. You would just make us curious about those things that, that maybe stood out. And, and you would teach us that, God, help us to be in a place where you can nudge and you can direct and you can move. If we're in a place we need to be shoved a little bit, go ahead and shove. We give you permission to do that. But guide us into knowing how to use these tools better so that as we know you and we walk with you, we can be certain that the things we put our hands to, the dominoes we touch, and the domino that we are, has the effect and the direction and the impact that you desire us to truly have. God, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.